This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Blinkist takes all the best need-to-know information from thousands of non-fiction books out there and reviews it in 15-minute written or audio summaries. So it's basically the app version of the What You Will Learn podcast. So if you're enjoying this, you're going to get a lot of value out of Blinkist. You can get a seven-day free trial, so don't take our word for it. Check it out for yourself. It's free. Head to Blinkist.com slash what you will learn. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash what you will learn for your free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are reviewing Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goldman. Why it can matter more than IQ. Now, as someone with a high IQ, it's important to get a bit of EQ in there every now and then. <laughs> Jeez, I was wondering what you're going to remind everyone you got a high IQ and six seconds in... <laughs> We're reminded. I probably should have saved it until later in the book, but uh, mate, emotional intelligence probably matters more so. Yes, that's what we're yeah. going to learn today, that your IQ means shit, <laughs> because emotional intelligence is where it's at. Goldman kicks it off with a story about a bus driver, and we've all got this experience at some stage, where the bus driver, just full of optimism and energy and happiness, just really infects you with the same kind of emotion, then you go out for the rest of your day, and you spill this emotion that you've been infected with on other people and it's this positive feedback loop that can happen. Yeah, it can also very much work the other way. There are a whole bunch of people out there who are at the mercy of their impulse. They they lack self-control and Daniel Goldman says they suffer from this moral deficiency where one little thing can tick them off and set them off into a fit of rage and it can really impact not just themselves and the rest of their day but all the people around them as well. Anyone can be angry, that's easy, but to be angry at the right person to the right degree, to the right time, for the right amount of time, for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not easy. That's a quote by your man Aristotle. He is is a great man and it is important because, yeah, it's very easy to just flick the switch and get really pissed off at somebody for doing something really small, but you got to realize that not everything deserves getting angry at. You need to be angry at the right person at the right time and this is what all the emotional intelligence boils down to. We can be infected by a lot of the bullshit that's going on. If you pick up any newspaper, uh, you're going to see a lot of turmoil and chaos that's happening around the world. And we don't necessarily have to be infected all the time by all this turmoil. And emotional intelligence is really the thing that's going to help you through all this mess. Daniel Goleman was a psychologist first and then later became a journalist. So in his role as, I guess, reporting on psychology, he's been seeing these growing trends. Firstly, that... There seems to be more and more and more chaos around the world. This chaos dictated by emotional states and by people not being able to control their emotions. But at the same time, pleasingly, he's also seen this growing trend in stories about people being able to harness their emotions to become more empathetic, to become more self-aware and use it in a positive sense. So this book, from his position as both a psychologist and a journalist, is about how we can harness our own emotions and better understand the people around us. It might be tough because if you think about our biological design, our circuitry is based on base, you know, almost like 50,000 generations ago, not the last 500 generations and not the last five. And our civilization is evolving at a much faster rate than our biological wirings can really deal with it. One of the biggest out-of-date neural alarms is the urgent message that comes from the amygdala. 
which is part of the fight or flight response. Back in the day, it might have been a lion popping up out, you know, around the cave about to grab your kid. But today, uh, we'll have the same emotional response by the boss giving you the look um, or telling you, you, you know, you're about to cop it. Our ancient emotional brain takes in these signals and quickly kicks into an almost instant response in that critical few milliseconds. In the past, it served us well because it meant we could avoid the dangers or we could attack the tribe that was coming at us. But these days, it doesn't serve the same purpose because these split-second emotional reactions aren't going to lead us to the best outcome. Instead, if we were able to take a bit of a step back, a bit of a breather, and think a little bit more rationally about it. So whereas the amygdala is the part of the brain that is a fight-or-flight response that might be the thing out of date, the emotional manager where all of your emotional intelligence is going to actually come from is the prefrontal cortex, which is the thing that, that can actually manage all of your emotions and choose the right reaction and right response to fit the, cir- the circumstance that you might be in. So Goleman tells a story of this student called Jason. He was a straight A student. He was going to try out to. He was trying out to get into medical school. One day, his physics teacher gave him an eighty on a quiz. Jason came back with a butcher's knife and stabbed it through his collarbone. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> Jason, whilst he was incredibly smart, getting yeah, straight A's. He uh, emotionally didn't yeah. have it together. Um, that's probably an extreme example, but I think everyone can think of someone who's really, really book smart, but in the real world, emotional sense doesn't quite all have it all there. The subheading of the book is why EQ it might be stronger than IQ. And if, I think if you look around, it definitely is the case. Uh, my experience at university, there's a lot of really, really, really smart people who got high distinctions in all their grades, high 80s, high 90s and everything. And yes, it was somewhat correlated to where they went after university, but I think their emotional intelligence 100% had a much bigger impact. How they can handle other people and relationships and the people they work with, that is a much bigger predictor about where they're going to go in the years following. Goleman says that IQ and your natural innate intelligence is a predictor of success in terms of the types of jobs you can get which leads into the types of money you can make, which leads leads into all these different life circumstances. But there's a big but. And the big but is that IQ really only contributes to about 20% of that success in all of these studies, which means that there's a hell of a lot of room, another 80% for all the other factors that aren't IQ. Yep. So sorry, Ash, show you... (laughs) Got it. Yeah. Your IQ is only contributing 20%, mate. But luckily, you got a bit of EQ in there yeah. mixed in. That's it. Reading books like this helps as well. Just bump that off a few points. Bump it up. What we're going to be covering in this episode are the five elements of emotional intelligence from Daniel's research. And hopefully, by the end of the episode, you can be, understand what emotional intelligence is and drive your own EQ points up a few extras. The first element of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And there's an old Japanese tale where a belligerent samurai once challenged a Zen master to explain to him the concept of heaven and hell. The monk replied with scorn, you are nothing but an idiot. I can't waste my time with fools like you. So the samurai's honor had been attacked and he flew into a fit of rage. He pulled his sword from his scabbard and yelled, I could kill you for your impertinence. And that, the calm monk replied, is hell. Startled, the samurai realized that the master just pointed out he was in this absolute fury. He was at the mercy of his emotions. And instantly, the samurai calmed down, sheathed his sword, bowed, and thanked the monk for his insight. And that, the monk said, is heaven. Mm. 
It's a good story. I think it's a bit of a stretch getting it back to uh, what <laughs> self-awareness is. But what I think Daniel's saying is that the master is aware of her or his emotions in the first place. So being able to identify when the emotion is in hell and identify when it is in heaven. So this is what self-awareness is. Yeah, I think the samurai here, he instantly reacted. He sprung into action. He was about to attack and kill this calm old nice monk uh, because he was purely the victim of his own emotions and these reactions. He wasn't self-aware to realize that this small feeling inside that had been triggered by the monk shouldn't necessarily lead to such an uh, incredible reaction. And once he did become self-aware, he started to realize that how foolish, I guess, he would be to be a victim of such a small thing. Taking the analogy from the book Getting Past No, where we spoke about in negotiation, at the very start, once you're, you might get attacked, your ego or something, by the other person taking a certain kind of position, what you need to do in that terms of negotiation is go to the balcony, step outside your emotions and look at it as an objective point of view. And this is exactly what self-awareness is. When you see your emotions really ramping up, whether it might be anger or fear or anything like that, the way to diffuse it is by stepping out of them in the first place. When it comes to self-awareness and an understanding of your own feelings and emotions, there are really three levels that Daniel lays out that you could fall into. And I'm sure if you think about it, you know, I guess, one character from your life in one of each of these three, and you can probably place yourself somewhere in each of these three. The first level and the lowest level is what he calls engulfed. So these people, they often feel swamped by their emotions. They feel helpless to escape them. It's as if their moods have completely taken charge. They're not aware of their feelings. They feel lost in them. They don't really have any perspective. And as a result, they don't even try to escape their bad moods because they can't even possibly fathom a world where they could control their emotions rather than letting their emotions control them. So using pulling through an analogy for this, say if you see your partner on the dance floor dirty dancing with this other random person that you've never seen before, if you're the person who gets engulfed in your emotions you just go straight away, your emotion of rage comes through and you know you, you run on the dance floor and you're aggressive toward the other person and you might end up in a bit of a fist fight or something. Mate, that uh, example came very fresh to your mind extremely quickly. You <laughs> didn't have to think about that one for too long. Yeah, that was quite specific, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe sometime in my <laughs> not, not too, too decent, <laughs> not too distant fast. <laughs> no, really. The second level is accepting. So while the, these people... So this might be a person who's not just accepting of what they're feeling, but also of their moods, but they don't really try and change them. So there seems to be two branches of the accepting type, those who are usually in good moods and have little motivation to change them, or people who, despite the clarity of their moods, are susceptible to bad ones, but just accept them anyway. Uh, so in this case, on the dance floor, they just go, oh, oh. It's the only end. And just accept <laughs> just it. Cough it. And then the third level is self-aware. So these are the people who are aware of their moods, much like the second level. They're, the second level, they're aware of their moods. But the difference in the third level is that these people understand some of the sophistication and some of the complexity behind their moods. And with this clarity, they're able to take some steps, take some action in towards managing their moods. Mm. So in this case, you're looking at them dancing on the dance floor, grinding up and... You can really look at your moods a bit objectively and start understanding, oh, you know, maybe it's a cousin or something. <laughs> the analogy's starting to fall apart. Yeah, I, know. I, shouldn't have, 
<laughs> I shouldn't have pulled this one through, eh? Anyway, they're the three levels that we can all have. Engulfed isn't good. Just accepting your emotions as is. And third, being actually self-aware. And once you are self-aware, you can actually control your emotion and your prefrontal cortex is the one involved, not your amygdala. So then you can really strategize for what the appropriate action is given the circumstances are. The second aspect of emotional intelligence is managing emotions. We're leaving the story of the dirty dancing cousin hooking up with you. Leave that behind. We'll leave that one behind. (laughs) But really the sense of self-mastery of being able to withstand the emotional storms the fortune brings you every day is absolutely huge. Rather than just being passion slave and then being pulled along by whatever emotion you have and just dragging you along through life, this is what something we need to avoid and this is what managing emotions is all about. It's important to note here that the goal is balance, not just emotional suppression. So emotional suppression would be copying any bad things that come your way and brushing it off and pretending like it doesn't matter and trying to just push down all your emotions and be very neutral to anything. Instead, we want a nice balance. We don't want to be such a victim to our emotions that they take control of our lives, but we need to experience some kind of emotions from time to time, of course. So say if you're driving a car and someone cuts you off, someone might say, that son of a bitch and... (laughs) Uh, it matters immensely the trajectory of rage where the thought is followed by more and more thoughts in a circular pattern of just rage and anger and everything. And if it does go like that, it's a bit like, you could have hit me, that bastard. I can't let him get away with that. And then your body immobilizes the fight. You get worked <laughs> up. <laughs> then all of a sudden, the car behind you honks you, just an innocent, oh, you're missing, a, you're missing the red light, the orange light, mate. Yeah. And then you're in that state, you're, you're, you turn back and scream at him and you know, you're taking that one instance from earlier throughout the rest of your day, mm. you get in the office, you're getting pissed off at people for no reason. Um, compare that with, with someone who cuts that thought off at the very roots as soon as it actually happens. Yeah, by, by contrast, you might be able to think a little bit more objectively, I guess, about the situation and realize that it's not a a personal attack on you. They didn't consciously look you in the eyes and think, yeah, screw you, I'm going to cut you off here. Maybe they didn't see you. Maybe they had some good reason for driving so carelessly. Maybe they had some medical emergency to get to. Maybe they were busting to take a piss and they're just in a rush themselves. If you can take a step back and manage your emotions from that perspective, you're going to obviously drive a lot better in that instance, but you're also then going to, the rest of your day isn't going to be so detrimentally uh, impacted by this sense of road rage. The model for de-escalating anger when it arises is to cool off psychologically by waiting out the adrenal surge in a setting where it's not likely to further have these triggers. So during off the cooling off period, the angry person can put on the brakes of the cycle of, of hostile thoughts by seeking out distractions. So distractions are a really good, powerful mood-altering device. Yeah, cooling off is important rather than just being in that rage. As you say, if you're, if you're still stewing in the rage from the guy cutting you off and then you get tooted for something innocent, you're still in that rage. You haven't cooled off yet. Things like you know, taking a long walk or going for some exercise are always good ways to detach yourself from that angering, rageful situation and take a step back. For me, uh, a recent one was cleaning. Got pretty angry about cleaning. Uh, and moving some boxes and packing some boxes up and stuff. So I had to cool down, go have a shower, and then five minutes later, you realize that you've been a bit of an idiot. Who are you angry at? So, uh, yeah, I was rageful, Alison. We were packing some boxes and cleaning some stuff. And Poor Alison. Yeah, yelled yeah. unnecessarily. And you realized, yelled at her? Yeah. Jeez, mate. 
realized five minutes later after the shower that that's just ridiculous. Just another yeah. example why IQ's <laughs> IQ means him, nothing, mate. mate. <laughs> IQ's nothing. And uh, he actually has what he uh, he calls the ventilation fallacy. So people might think, oh, if you're angry, just let it out, let that rage out, yell, scream, kick and punch, and once you get all that anger out, then you're done and you're, you're back to normal. But he says that's a fallacy. That's bullshit. It actually doesn't make you feel better. You're actually still caught up in that rage. So if you get angry about something and you start yelling and screaming, you're actually still angry and you're still ready for the next fight that comes your way. So yeah, cool off. Cool off. So these are more physical responses we're talking about now and they're really embedded in the amygdala again with a fight or flight response. And each time that this is triggered is really when you've got a feeling of being endangered not just physically, but can also be the symbolic threat of simply your self-esteem or your dignity. So if you're being treated unjustly or rudely or someone insults you or demeans you um, or being frustrated in pursuing an important goal or anything like that that's undermining your own self-esteem and dignity, that's going to trigger this fight or flight response in your amygdala also. And this is how worry and anxiety uh, originates. You might be driving down the road, you hear a little ticking sound and you think, oh no, that... Muffler sounds bad. What if I have to take it to the shop? I can't afford to get it fixed. The mechanics always rip me off. Uh, I'm going to have to take money out of my kid's tuition fund. Uh, what if I can't afford it? Uh, I got this bad school report last week. <laughs> We're spiraling out of control here. Yeah. We've got this initial worry where there was one small sound and we've extrapolated that into this massive cycle, not only about the situation itself, but then we start worrying about everything in life. So the worrying mind can spin on an endless loop of just low-grade melodrama and one of the set of concerns leading on to the next and next and back and forth again. There is, of course, sometimes when worry is not such a bad thing. Every now and then, if you're mulling over a real problem, then a solution might just pop up and it can actually be helpful, the process of worrying. I think for that one time when worrying does leave you to a positive response, there's probably 10 or 20 times where this chronic worrying leads you down the wrong path entirely. So we're spinning out of control. We're almost worrying for the sake of worrying. We're extrapolating these small things into massive problems. And some suggestions might be just stop worrying. Yeah, it doesn't work. It's a very easy thing to say. If someone's worrying, just say, just stop worrying about it. It doesn't matter that much. It's easy to say, but it's very, very hard for someone who's caught in that uh, doom spiral of worry to just just stop. (laughs) It's pretty shit advice, isn't it? Yeah, it's a shocker. It's like just try. You know, I've had sometimes trouble trying to get to sleep, and be like, the more you try to sleep, the more difficult it is to sleep, and then it's just a negative feedback loop. Or, um, I think for might be stepping out of bounds here a little bit, but <laughs> you know, even with your partner or whatever, being a male, when you get in your brain, you're like, come on, come on, get <laughs> get it done, get strong, get strong. It goes the other way. <laughs> Don't you reckon? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that as well, yeah. Yeah, it's not just me. Yeah. <laughs> so moving back to what worry really is, the, there is a solution to the chronic warrior and the first step is really to self-awareness. If you just take a step back and catch the worrisome thought episode at the very start as it begins, you can really try and catch it off and cut it off if you just take the rational mind to it almost uh, to just see how ridiculous this loop is spiraling and the direction it's going. Yeah, to just add another analogy, I guess it's like there's snowball rolling down the hill. If you can pick that little tiny snowball up at the start, it's going to be a lot easier than the big boulder that's coming at you at the very bottom of the hill. Mm. It doesn't explicitly say this in the book, but I think the biggest biggest one towards self-awareness is definitely meditation. 
I think personally, whenever I've gone through that worry moments, if you can just take a 15-minute meditation, look at the brain and look at the train of thoughts going around it, it really is the thing that just cuts off the worry entirely. So it might be anger, might be fear or anything like that, but I feel like meditation is an antidote to a lot of this emotional intelligence. The third aspect of emotional intelligence is all about motivating yourself. What seems to set apart the people at the very top of their competitive pursuits compared to the others of, you know, mostly very, very similar abilities is the degree to which they can motivate themselves. So it's all about the ideas of adopting regular practice routines for years and years and years. And two people who begin at the same point can end up at very different levels of success. The doggedness that you might have toward your goals is a an emotional trait. How easily you quit and how easily you might stick through a project and get through the end. And uh, if you stick long enough, you might get through to the benefits of scarcity and be sitting on a lot of value. But again, this all comes down to motivating yourself, which is an emotional part of emotional intelligence. It's all about impulse control. And there's a very, very, very famous study by, I believe his name is Walter Michel, who had the marshmallow test. He took these four-year-old kids and put them in a room and the researcher came in and plopped a little marshmallow on the table and said, oh, hey, I quickly got to run out, run out of the room and grab something. I'll be back in a few minutes. When I come back, if this marshmallow is still sitting here, I'll give you another one so you can have two. So waiting a couple of minutes can mean going from one marshmallow to two. And of course, a marshmallow sitting there, plump, juicy, sweet little marshmallow is a very tempting thing for a four-year-old. Some of them caved and ate it straight away. They missed out on the second one. Some of them were able through various different methods to resist that temptation and wait those extra couple of minutes. Maybe they closed their eyes. Maybe they started just sniffing the marshmallow but didn't go the full way. And when the researcher came back, they were rewarded with a second one. So this is an example of delaying gratification, which is an eternal battle between impulse and restraining yourself. And quite interestingly, you might think, oh, they're just four years old. It doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter. They had massive impacts on these people for the rest of their lives. Those who resisted the temptation at only the age of four, when they got to the stage of adolescence, they were much more socially competent, personally effective, self-assertive, and better able to cope with all the frustrations of life. And ultimately, this links back to those elements of success. If you can defer the gratification as long as possible, if you can go through something a little bit uncomfortable now, you get the much bigger results at the end. So maybe rather than going to that party, you stay at home and do a bit extra work or maybe instead of sitting on the couch, you go and hit the gym and eventually all these small instances of of ignoring or resisting the temptations lead to the big reward at the end. Yes, yeah, so you can take it to anything investing rather than going to purchase that little bag now or your shoes or anything. You put it in the stock market and then in 10 years' time, you can buy two pairs of shoes which is really the exact same thing. Another part of motivating oneself is all about how your mood affects your performance and controlling your moods. Something that we all might have is just performance anxiety and or more explicitly stated as as test anxiety in the 1960s. They really looked at how nerves played on students' tests and if you've got just a little bit of cheeky amount of anxiety, it might motivate you to study really hard so you don't stuff up the test and get an F. But when the kids were way too anxious, all of a sudden, the apprehension just gets a bit too much and it interferes with your clear thinking and then you aren't able to even study effectively and then you just cook up everything and you suck at uh, the test. 
And obviously, this extrapolates now to your day-to-day life. If you've got something coming up where you need to really perform in a moment, and if you get too nervous, then you're probably going to cook that moment in pieces, aren't you? It sounds very similar to the example you gave previously about the, you know, this performance anxiety, but in this case on a test, saying that you know once you get, once you get into the test, if you're just thinking that you have to perform really, really well and you're focused on performing well, there is that contradiction where by thinking so hard about trying to perform well, your brain almost closes off a little bit. And instead, we need to have these good moods. If we're feeling in a more relaxed, more positive, more comfortable mood, our brain is able to think a little bit more flexibly. It's able to think with more complexity and thus you're going to perform much better on those tests. So let's say these students, they go out there, they get their performance anxiety and they cook up their exam as well and they get a, and they get a C or a D and this leads on to another study where they pose the question to a group of students, say if you did stuff up your exam and it was well below your expectations, it's now one week after, what are you going to do? The students with the high levels of hope, they were able to work harder and think of a range of things that they might do to bolster their final grade. Compare that to the students with only a moderate level of hope. They thought of a couple of ways, some of the more obvious ones, but they didn't have the same level of depth or creativity in the ideas that they came up with and they had less determination to pursue them afterwards. So that idea of hope, the idea that you do have a bit of control, the idea that you could improve your results made all the difference. Hope in one sense is believing that you have the will and the way to accomplish goals, whatever they may be. So even though it's not going good so far, you have the ability to find a way to make it right. So it's a bit like borrowing from the obstacle is the way from Ryan Holiday's book, a stoic book. Once the obstacle comes in front of you, a lot of people will be defeated and go down. If someone's hopeful and has this belief, no matter what, this obstacle is just part of the path and a part of a way of growing on the way to whatever their goals might be. The fourth aspect of emotional intelligence is recognizing emotions in others. The fifth aspect is handling relationships. Now, we're going to chunk them together because they have roots of the same source, and that's empathy. Empathy builds on self-awareness in that the more open we are to our own emotions and understanding our own emotions, the more skilled that we can become in reading other people's feelings. People's emotions are rarely put into words and they're more so expressed through their cues. So the key to intuiting another's feelings is the ability to see their nonverbal channels. And these are things like their tone of voice, their, their gesture, their facial expression, and all this kind of stuff. So the modes of emotions are really nonverbal and not rationally just in the words that someone's spitting at you. Yeah, if you're thinking purely rationally about the words people are saying, you're going to miss a large, large, large proportion of the message they're actually trying to convey. So looking at the words rationally gives you only one tiny piece of insight, but looking deeper into their body language will give you the truer emotional sense of where somebody is at. There's a big cost to misreading people's emotions. If you're just looking at the words and you think they're fully transparent, you might take actions that would go against their truer emotions. Yeah, I think you can just tell someone when they're just full of shit. They tell you something, can you just you just get this sense and this feeling that they're they're lying to you? And if you can do that correctly, then I guess you got the the empathy and can recognise what the other person is really saying behind the curtains. One of the things emotionally intelligent people is really attune themselves to the emotions of the other person. 
if they're really sad, you can actually get down to their level and speak on the level of sadness to them and connect. Or if the other person's extremely excited for something, you can attune to that as well. Compare that to the other people. If you're extremely excited about something and then the other person's just really sad about their dog passing away, then it's not going to be really good interaction between these two people and, and it's just not going to go anywhere. So these skills are absolutely vital to be able to understand other people and then to be able to get on their level, which leads into the the next chunk, which is all about handling relationships. So whether that's a family relationship, whether that's a personal friendship, whether that's a work relationship, you really need to have really, really strong emotional intelligence to be able to connect with everybody at all different levels. Goldman says the skills of self-management and empathy Add these together, you got a very good mix for uh, handling relationships. They really make you socially competent at handling others in a really effective way. And if you've got deficits here, you're going to be really inept in the social world or be or just be subject to your own interpersonal disasters. There are those type of people out there who are just popular and charming, and these are the terms we use for those who have these emotional skills and they make you feel good in every single interaction with them and they're really a social commodity. You want them around at every party, at every gathering or anything like that. You want to make sure this person's invited to it. You do want those types of people around. We call them popular and charming, but really what it is is a true understanding of emotional intelligence of themselves and others. And this was found in a remarkable demonstration through this study the ability for emotions to pass from one person to another. In this experiment, there were two volunteers. They filled out a checklist about their moods at the moment when they walked into the study and they simply sat facing each other quietly while waiting for the experimenter to enter the room. After this two minutes of just sitting there looking at each other, they filled out the clipboard again and they ticked off what moods they were feeling at the same time. And amazingly, the two different people it didn't matter where they began at the start, they actually converged the second time around to have much more similar moods and emotions at that point in time. So moods really are infectious and you can make the other person feel a bit closer to how you're feeling. And this is the essence of rapport. The, the mark of a powerful leader or performer is the ability to move whole, a whole entire audience of thousands in this kind of way. And by the same token, the people who suck at receiving and sending these emotions... It is really awkward and uncomfortable to sit down with because, uh, but at the same time, you can't really articulate and put your finger on why it's the case. So that's the book, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. It's, it's a wildly popular book and rightly so. IQ had been a thing for tens and hundreds of years where people understood IQ, they were able to study IQ, they were able to link IQ to various levels of success. But it was only much more recently, like in the 90s, I believe, that this EQ idea, this emotional intelligence started to become more and more popular. And so as a bit of a recap, the first element of EQ is knowing your own emotions. It was that idea of self-awareness, recognizing a feeling when it happens and understanding the impact it could have on you. The second aspect was managing emotion. So you're aware of your emotion now and now you're managing it in a certain way. So handling feelings so they are appropriate to whatever the circumstance is, is the ability that is just building on this self-awareness for your emotional intelligence. The third important aspect was motivating yourself. It turned out that the big difference in the levels of success in people 
came down to the small behaviors they took and the ability to which they were able to motivate themselves. And we talked about the marshmallow test where the idea of that delaying gratification, rather than having one marshmallow now, you might be able to get two later. And the fourth was recognize emotion in others and the fifth was handling relationships, both with their roots in empathy and being able to understand the emotions of the other person and tune your emotions to theirs so you can actually have a connecting experience. If you got something out of that, let us know, let your friends know, share it on your socials and tag us in. 